Okay, let me ask you. What do these places have in common? Washington? Uh-oh. What, what has anything to do in common with Washington, right? Harrisburg? Velasco? Columbia? Waterloo. What in the world is he talking about? Now, if I began this way, you would have known right away what I was talking about. Those of you who know your state history better than I. If I'd said Washington on the Brazos, you would have said what? Yeah, and it was the first what? First capital of Texas. The second was Harrisburg. The third was Velasco. The fourth was Columbia. And the fifth one was Waterloo. Where in the world is Waterloo? It's in Belgium, right? Yeah. Well, in, I think it was about 1839 or so, they renamed it. They renamed it after the father of Texas. And who is that? Stephen F. Austin. Yeah. What, what does that have to do with things? Well, uh, certainly Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, Austin, El Paso, even Fort Worth have eclipsed places like Waterloo and Harrisburg and Belasco and even Washington. And that has something to do with the story in just a minute. Well, we're going to cover all the New Testament books sooner or later. Uh, when I first got here, we did Philippians. And then we did, uh, a little more than a year ago, we did Ephesians. Ken's done Romans. And he has the fortitude and the bravery to tackle Revelation. So if you, if you want to hear about Revelation, come on Wednesday nights. And once about every eight weeks, you'll hear about Revelation. Okay. It, I think it's going to take us a couple of years to get to Revelation. <laughs> Maybe three. Yeah. So tonight we're doing Colossians, beginning with the church at Colossae. Well, what do we know about it? It was in the southwestern part of Asia Minor, now known, as, of course, as Turkey, in the region called Anatolia. It's about 100 miles southeast of Ephesus, which was the provincial capital under the Romans. You go to the Aegean Sea and go in from Ephesus about 125 miles, and it's 90 miles north of the Mediterranean, and the highlands of Asia Minor at about 800 feet uh, elevation. It was on a major trade route from the west to the east or the east to the west, from Ephesus to the Euphrates River. In fact, when the Persians invaded in the 5th century under Xerxes, and then later Cyrus the Younger, they went right through Colossae, and at that time they observed that it was a large and prosperous and rich town. It was in the, and it is in the Lycus Valley. The Lycus Valley is one of three branches of a meandering river, literally the Meander River, which empties into the Aegean Sea. About 100 miles from uh, its connection is where the source of the Lycus River is. And there are three cities that were very important at that time. Well, there were two that were more important than Colossae. Laodicea was far more important at this time than Colossae, and so was Herapolis. Laodicea, which we find, of course, in the book of Revelation, was about 10 miles away from uh, Colossae, and it was across the river on the other side. And Herapolis, 
was on the same side of the river, about 12 miles north. And those two cities, or towns, were about six miles apart, almost directly across the river from each other. The Lycus Valley was a fertile region with great flocks of sheep and wool trade. The ground was very fertile, a lot of agricultural trade and fig and olives. The wool industry was very strong. As a matter of fact, Colossian dye was known throughout that part of the world for its color, for its deep, deep reddish-purple color. Laodicea had become the financial capital. It was much younger than, than Colossae and the administrative center for Rome. And Herapolis, though Colossae had cold springs, Herapolis was known for its hot springs and for its medicinal purposes. And by this time, because of the overshadowing influence and importance of places like Austin and, I mean, um, Laodicea and Herapolis, Colossae had kind of shrunk into the background. It was from an ancient Frisian culture, Indo-European. They spoke a Greek kind of language. And then they came under the dominance of the Persians in the 5th century, Xerxes and Cyrus and the others. And it lost its independence as a result of that. It's associated with some pretty rich people. At one time, King Midas was king in this region, and then after him, under the Lydons, Croesus. You've heard the expression, rich as Croesus. So at one time, it had been very, very rich. And in the fourth century, it came under Alexander and the Greeks down to the second century. And of course, then the Romans came in in the middle of the second century. It had been a part of the region of Galatia, the province of Galatia. And Rome didn't move it, but what it did is it changed the lines in 49 AD, probably about a decade and a half before the story that we're talking about here, when Paul writes the letter. And they moved it then into the province of Asia, which was to the west. It had been very prosperous, as we said earlier, and it had been very populous, but it was in decline because of what we said earlier. Laodicea and Herapolis were more important. It had a significant Jewish population. Antiochus the Great, Antiochus III, the Seleucid or the Greek king after the collapse of the Alexandrian Empire, had settled about 2,000 Jewish families there. He'd moved them in from Babylonia and Mesopotamia. And in addition to that, some Palestinian Jews had moved in because of its rich wine region and its baths in Phrygia. So by the time we're talking about now, which is probably roughly 62 uh, uh, AD, it has got a fairly sizable Jewish population. Uh, we don't really know how large it was, but we do know that they collected the temple tax and the regional governor confiscated it and it's recorded how much they, they captured when they confiscated it. And based on those calculations of about how much it would have taken for that amount of gold to have been assimilated or collected for the temple tax, they estimate that in the Lycus Valley that there were probably, believe it or not, about 50,000 Jews. So it was a sizable population. Probably about two or 3,000 of them were in Colossae alone. In this area, they had a syncretistic approach to religion. There was, of course, the Greek pantheon of gods, and there were a lot of mystery cults. If you remember your history of Greece at this time, mystery cults were religious groups that offered some kind of hope for eternal life by following and devoting themselves to some kind of cultic god or, or leader. And the uh, chief goddess, mystery 
cult goddess was Sybil, the Anatolian mother goddess. She was the consort of Attis, the vegetation god. People in this area also worshipped angels. Um, and the chief angel that many of them worshipped was Michael. And we will see some reference to that. Not Michael, but angels in the book of Colossians. This is the background for Paul's warning in chapter 2, verse 18, about the worship of angels. So what about the, Col the Colossian church? Well, there were two books that Paul wrote to church or churches in the New Testament that he never visited. Of course, the pastorals were written for, for Timothy and to Titus, and then he wrote to Philemon. But the, the churches that he either had visited or would visit were, of course, Rome, Corinthians, Ephesians, the Philippians, of course. But he never visited, as far as we know, the churches in Galatia. And as far as we know, he may have later. But there's no record of his having visited Colossae. So he didn't start the church there. And he apparently, by the time he writes the letter, when he's probably in prison, he makes an observation that he has never seen them. Look at chapter 2, verse 1, if you've got your Bible. For I want you to know how great a struggle I've had on your behalf for those who are at Laodicea, a sister city, and for all those who have not personally seen my face. So apparently he'd not been to Laodicea or Herapolis or, or Colossae. But clearly it was established under his influence. What we think was during the three-year three ministry at Ephesus, he was there almost three years in Acts 19. It says in that chapter then that the influence of the gospel under Paul then for two of those years spread throughout all of Asia, and that's where this is, and it reached all the Jews and the Greeks, Acts 19.10. So probably while Paul was in Ephesus, one of his protégés helped plant the church, and we think that it was Epaphras. So if you've got your Bible, look at chapter 1, verse 7. For there we see that uh, Epaphras is mentioned, that they have learned from Epaphras. Now, whether he was actually the first one to plant it or not, we don't know. But clearly, he had been there, and he had helped to disciple Christians in Colossae. He was one of Paul's missionary colleagues. We know this. Philemon is very important at this point, because in addition to Philippians and uh, Ephesians, Philemon is probably a prison epistle, probably written about the same time. And we see in Philemon, verse 23, that Epaphras was a colleague of, of Paul. And he was from Colossae. When you look at the last chapter of this book in verse 12, chapter 4, verse 12, he, Epaphras is mentioned of being one of your number. They had learned the gospel from him in verse number 7 of chapter 1. And we know that he had ministered also in Herapolis and also Laodicea. This is found in chapter 4. So when was the foundation of the church? Well, he was in Ephesus probably about 53, 54, 55, somewhere in there. So early to mid-50s, the church at Colossae was probably established and most likely by Epaphras. It was predominantly a Gentile congregation. Look at Paul's specific references to the Gentiles. Chapter 1, verse 27. Uh, he was proclaiming the gospel to these saints, and he says, 
to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So he knows that he's writing mainly to a Gentile congregation. And when you look at the catalog of sins that is found in chapter 3, he talks about what they have left and then what they need to be. In chapter 3, verses 5 through 9, he talks about immorality, impurity, passion, evil, greed, idolatry, and that's the key there. These are all pretty typical of how we would describe pagan Greek culture at that time. They probably met in Philemon's house. When we look at Philemon, the second uh, verse, we know that there was a church that met. When he addresses Philemon, there's a church that's meeting in your house, he says to Philemon. And there, there are three connections that are important to trace this back to Epaphras and probably Philemon's leadership there at the church. There's the Archippus connection. When you look at Philemon 2, Archippus is Paul's fellow soldier, and he's in Philemon's house church there in Colossae. Uh, he was also a minister. Archippus was a minister in uh, Colossae. We find that in chapter 4, verse 17, apparently in Philemon's house. So there was more than one minister beside Philemon there, and Epaphras has moved on. There's a connection with Onesimus. Of course, we know who Onesimus was. He was whose slave? Philemon's. And so when you look at Philemon, verse 16, we see that Onesimus was his slave. And in Colossians 4, we see that Onesimus is a member of the Colossian church. So we're seeing this connection between Philemon and Colossae over and over. There's also another connection, Epaphras, whom we think, who, who we think founded the, the church. There's a connection with Aristarchus. And Philemon, the 23rd verse, it says, Paul sent greetings from Aristarchus and Epaphras, who has visited him, to Onesimus, who is in Colossae. And Paul sent greetings to the Colossians from both Aristarchus and Epaphras in Colossians 4. So all of these suggest that Philemon is probably, if not the pastor, one of the leaders in the church there that had been founded by Epaphras, or Philemon was, and had been founded by Epaphras. There may have been a second home group. We're talking about starting another home group here. There may have been more than one group, home group in, in, uh, in Colossae. He's writing to the church, but there may have been more than one home group there. When you look at chapter 4, Verse 15, what does it say? Greet the brothers who are in Laodicea. And then he says, and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. Now, that could be that Nympha is in Laodicea, or he might be saying, greet those that are in Laodicea and also greet those that are in Nympha's house. So we're not sure. They may, may have been meeting in uh, Philemon's house. He may have been the leader. He may have been... Not the leader, maybe somebody else, but he certainly was one of the leaders. And they have, may have also been meeting in Nympha's home. There was also a close connection with Laodicea because, number one, they were in close proximity to each other, only 10 miles apart, the other side of the river, as we said. And he shows that Epaphras in chapter 4 has a deep, deep concern for Laodicea. Paul in chapter 2 of Colossians in verse 1 expresses that his concern is not only for the Colossians, but also for those in Laodicea. And then, of course, he encourages them to, uh, to in encourage the Laodicean church in chapter 4, uh, verse 15 and 16. 
and he asked the Colossians to greet them in Laodicea. There's some other important historical references, but they're not found in Scripture. One of those is by Eusebius the historian, the third century historian. He says, and there's been a time gap here, but he probably has some good source for this. Philip, which Philip are we talking about? Philip who had ministered to the Ethiopian eunuch. So which Philip is that? Philip the deacon, Philip the evangelist. What do we know about Philip later in Acts? He has daughters who are what? Prophetesses. And they eventually have moved to Caesarea. Eusebius tells us that later that um, they had settled in Herapolis. Uh, that's not a biblical source, but it's very likely, about, about before 70 A.D. And also, too, Irenaeus. At the end of the second, the beginning of the third century, uh, he speaks about John's disciple Papias, who was also a fellow co-worker with Polycarp. He tells us that uh, Papias became a bishop there of Herapolis. So there's some other external historical sources about the region. So let's talk, talk about the book. What about authorship? Well, who do we believe wrote it? Paul. Paul. Uh, there's, there are two evidences in the, in the book. First of all, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, <laughs> an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Look at the final, some call it a, a greeting. It's at the end of the book. It's actually uh, a closing. But this is one place where he really gets personal about it. He says, I, Paul, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be to you all. So the two places in there where Paul says that he wrote it. And, of course, there are some scholars that are skeptical about some Pauline authorship of some of the New Testament books. One of the concerns is the heresy that he's talking about here, many will say was probably a proto-Gnostic heresy, one of the heresies that he's dealing with. And probably Gnosticism was not that far developed by this time when Paul is supposedly writing this letter, and so they have some concerns. They may say, well, it's probably a later author. Um, the description of Christ's cosmic identity is very well developed, much better developed than Paul's earlier works, his Christology and his earlier works. There's also a linguistic issue here. Now, now I want to say this up front. I believe Paul wrote it, okay, but there are others that, that don't. So when you take, do a linguistic analysis of the book, there are 48 words, scholar scholars tell us, that are not used anywhere else in other Pauline literature that we affirm as being Pauline. Okay, so it makes it a little different. Uh, there are 33 words in the book that are found nowhere else in the New Testament. So some would argue that this is a unique author that's not Paul. Supporters of Pauline authorship would say, yeah, but if you look at the similarities of what Paul is saying in Colossians with how he's writing in the language in Philemon, they're remarkably similar. And nobody, nobody questions Pauline authorship of Philemon. When you look at Galatians, Galatians also has some words that are not used anywhere else, and nobody disputes Paul's authorship. And when you look at Colossians as a whole, you know, 48 words out of the whole book, you know, the language of it's really not all that unique in the New Testament. The early fathers, to a person, affirm Pauline authorship. Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian Origen, the historian Eusebius. So what about the date? and the place of its origin. 
It was almost certainly a prison epistle, as we said, like in Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon. Uh, in chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, when you look there, you see that Tychicus carries the letter to Colossae. Well, if you go over to Ephesians, which we know is an ep- uh, a prison epistle, it also says that Tychicus carried Paul's letter then also to the Ephesians. So that's pretty good evidence that it's coming from the same time, delivered by the same person. There are also some commonalities, as we said, with Philemon, which we know to be a prison epistle. So when you look at, at uh, uh, the salutation here, or the greeting here, it includes Timothy, and so does the one in Philemon. The same people are mentioned in Philemon as in Colossians, Onesimus, Archippus, Aristarchus, Epaphras, and Mark and Luke are there. So when you compare chapter 4 at the end with all of those greetings, I don't know who's going to do that sermon, doing the sermon where you have a whole bunch of names that we don't know much about. I'm going to let you do that, Chris, okay? (laughs) Uh, When you look at all those names, uh, you you compare that with Philemon, verse 23, and there's a remarkable similarity, okay? It was almost certainly then written from Rome, and you know, there's a debate about whether or not Paul was imprisoned twice, whether he was imprisoned once and then let go and came back. And some would say that if he then did get out, that maybe he did visit Colossae later. We don't know that. It was almost certainly during what we call his first imprisonment, about 62 AD, and the evidence from Rome, Aristarchus and Luke are mentioned as being there. So if you look at chapter 4 at the end, there's Aristarchus, there's Luke. And we know from Acts, Acts 25 and Acts 26, that they were with Paul in Rome. So you put Acts together with Colossians, and the evidence is pretty strong. So what is the timing of this? Well, probably about five to six, seven years after the founding of the church, near the time that Paul also wrote his letter to Philemon. And just afterward, we do know that there was a great earthquake in the Lycus Valley. It was susceptible to earthquakes all the time. It, in fact, destroyed uh, Herapolis, and uh, I'm not sure about Laodicea, but the citizens of, of Herapolis were wealthy enough that they rebuilt the city without any help from Rome. But we have no record anywhere of Colossae being destroyed, probably because it was fairly insignificant. So this is probably somewhere around uh, maybe five to seven years after the church was started. There's some people that argue otherwise. They would say, no, no, it was written from his imprisonment somewhere else. Some would say, you remember when he left, when he left Jerusalem, where, where did he uh, go after that on his way to Rome? He went to Caesarea and he was there for a while. So some would say, well, it's in Caesarea. The, the problem with that is we know that Philemon was probably, almost certainly, if not the leader, a key leader in the Colossian church. And Philemon 22 then Paul asks, not Colossians, but Philemon, Paul asks Philemon to prepare a room for him in Colossae. Well, the question is this. If you look at where Caesarea is and if you look at where Rome is and where you, if you look at where Colossae was, it makes no sense for him to ask Philemon to prepare a place for him because he's headed to Rome. And there's no record of his going to Colossae and Acts. Now, it could be that he's planning to visit Colossae after his imprisonment in 62. That would make sense. Uh, 
There, there are others that would, would argue that it would be even earlier when he was in Ephesus and temporarily imprisoned there. But this is problematic because Acts suggests that Luke and Mark, you know, it's the absence theory. You know, the, uh, Luke is writing in the first person, we did this, we did this, we did this, and all of a sudden there's this gap where Luke doesn't mention we, it's they. Well, it's during that time, you see, Luke is not in Ephesus with Paul. And yet, in Colossians 4, we know that Luke and Mark were with him. So probably those two theories don't hold much water. Almost certainly he was in Rome. Almost certainly it was 62 AD, and the circumstances were these. Epaphras has visited. We find this in chapter 1, verse 7, and 4.12. And he's updated Paul on the situation at Colossae. Epaphras has decided to remain in Rome. And Paul lists him as a fellow prisoner with him. Not in Colossians, but once again, in which book do you think? In Philemon. Okay. So we know that Epaphras is there. He's waited. He's ministering to, and he's a prisoner with Paul. And Paul writes the, the letter from Rome, from prison, almost certainly, addressing the issues that Epaphras has raised. And Tychicus then takes the letter to Colossae along with the slave, along with Onesimus, to reunite him with Philemon. Chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. What is the purpose of the book, and what are the themes? The main purpose is to correct some false teaching that is beginning to bubble up in Colossae. Rejecting the influences of, of, of two things. One is the domain of darkness. Chapter 2, verse 13. Paul introduces what he's talking about, some of the heresies there, with the domain of darkness. In chapter 2, verse 18... There's an issue of angels. There apparently was a cult, as we said, that venerated angels and spirits. This may have been the very, very beginning, hence, of Gnosticism, proto-Gnosticism. Blended along with pagan practices and magic and the occult and astrology, although those are not mentioned specifically. This cult, we know later, emphasizes spiritual perfection, and an emphasis on knowledge and spiritual elitism with a kind of secret knowledge. Well, he addresses this in verse number two. He talks about don't fall prey to human philosophies and traditions, those, that kind of secret knowledge that's associated with those kind of cults. And then they also were, uh, some, some sects of Gnosticism were severely ascetic, self-denying. And we find this in what he addresses in verse 23 of chapter 2 where he warns them against self-made religion that emphasizes self-denial to an extreme. So that's one thing that he's dealing with. He's dealing with some kind of cult that's associated with the domain of darkness. The other is, and, and some would say, uh, N.T. Wright says the whole thing is about uh, Jewish traditions and some Jews that have fallen into these practices as well. I'm not so sure it's all about Jewish heresy, but, but he says it is. Clearly, though, there is a problem of Jewish legalism here. For when you look at chapter 2, four verses there, referring to circumcision, the problem of circumcision, the purity laws, feast days, and the hint of mysticism, it is clear that he is speaking against a kind of Jewish legalism. So those are two of the big issues that we'll deal with in Colossians this kind of Gnostic sort of heresy that's emerging and Jewish legalism. The main theme of the book, I remember in New Testament, um, 
in my studying for my final in New Testament uh, 2 in the epistles. I finally learned the difference between Ephesians and Colossians. Ephesians is about the church, and it's about the what of the church? The body of Christ. Colossians is about the church, but it's about the what? It's about the head. It's about the head of Christ. So they both deal with the church, but this, of course, focuses on what? Christ's supremacy. Different aspects of supremacy. Cosmic supremacy. Uh, and I'm not going to go into great detail in this because we're going to preach through it a little bit later, but it's depicted in a hymn that is found in verses 15 through 20 of chapter 1. This hymn sounds very similar to the prologue to the Gospel of John and sounds very similar to the canonic hymn, the pouring out hymn of Philippians 2. In the first stanza, verses 15 through 17, it speaks about Christ's preexistence, his role in creation, and that he is the image of the what? Of the invisible God. Clearly cosmic superiority, supremacy, the mediator of all creation. In the second part of the hymn, in verses 18 through 20, he speaks about Christ's supremacy not in creation, but in what we've been talking about for 15 months. When did you say we started redemption? Yeah, last summer. His supremacy in redemption, redeeming all things through the power of His resurrection, re reconciling all things through His blood on the cross. And He comes to a crescendo later after this hymn in chapter 3 and emphasizes that, that Christ is all in all. So one theme, clearly, is Christ's supremacy as the cosmic Lord. There's a second supreme thing, and that is He is supreme as deity. Now, if this is proto-Gnosticism, you know what that turns into. Gnosticism basically turns into a kind of, not Christian, but some called it Christian polytheism, where they believed in kind of many demigods. And so he may be combating that there. There is only one God, and his Son is supreme. He possesses the fullness of deity, and he is head over all, and his authority over all in chapter 2. So supreme cosmic Lord, and he is supreme God of anything that you call God, and he's supreme over the church. There's an emphasis on the unity of the body in Ephesians, as we said. Here, the emphasis is on the headship of Christ over the church, 118. And then finally, he's supreme and comprehensive in his victory. His obedience on the cross has resulted in his ascension, his resurrection and his ascension. And as a result, near the end of chapter 2, he has been raised to the point where he does what? He subdues all things, all powers, and all authorities. So clearly, the main theme that runs through Colossians is the supremacy of Christ in different ways. There are some other major theological themes. Redemption, okay? Chapter 1, verse 20. The Redeemer of all creation. The analogy of baptism to the resurrection found in chapter 2 and 3. A third theme is freedom in Christ from legalism and empty religion, found in chapter 1. A couple of other sub-themes. Contrasting time and time again different domains and lifestyles. He talks about being raised from the domain of darkness and being redeemed in His kingdom. Set your mind above things, things above in chapter 3, rather than things below. 
Do not live worldly lives in chapter 3. And then he lists all those sins that we talked about, but holy lives, and he describes that. And then, too, uh, like Ephesians, we've got the household code. The household code where it talks about how we should manage our house and our business. The relationship of husband and wife. And what's next? Children and parents. And what's next? Slaves and masters, or we might say people in the workplace to their boss. So he has another household code, which is here. And it goes from the end of chapter 3 to the beginning of chapter 4. So the outline is something like this, very quickly. There's an introduction, chapter 1, 1 through 14, that has greetings and thanksgiving. We're going to talk about briefly tonight. And then there's a fairly lengthy prayer in six verses. And then he shifts to redemption, redemption through the Son. And that covers most of the rest of chapter uh, 1. Redemption through Christ who is supreme and Christ who reconciled us. We mentioned that a moment ago. And then Paul talks at the end of chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2, about his ministry for the church, his, his requirement to go to the Gentiles and proclaim God's mystery, and his concern. Remember we said he's concerned not only for Colossae, but also for Laodicea. I'm concerned for all of you that what? You be grounded in the knowledge of God's mystery. And then he begins to deal with the problems of the heresies after that. He talks about freedom in Christ, warning them about being captive in chapter uh, 2, about being captive to human traditions. Christ has made you free. Avoid legalistic practices of man-made religion. And then he talks about holy living in chapter 3. Holy living, you're a new person in Christ. Put away all those sinful pagan practices. Live a holy life. And then this is how you manage your family husband and wife, children and parents, slave and master. And then he talks about devotion to prayer in chapter 4 before he closes by talking about wise behavior speech amongst non-believers who are watching us, as we said this morning. And then a large part of chapter 4 is all of those final greetings and instructions and a closing. So now we get to preaching for about 10 minutes. Okay. The text tonight... Faithful saints, Colossians 1, 1 through 2. Very short text. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Well, that sounds like just about every other letter that he ever wrote, right? Yeah. There are a few differences, not many, but a few. Here what Paul does, three things. He verifies his apostolic authority. And he does that in other places. He identifies who faithful saints are, and then he encourages faithful saints. Verse 1, he verifies his apostolic authority. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. And we know what an apostle was, so we're not going to belabor this much. But apostle, apostolos means what? A messenger, a messenger. So he's commissioned by Christ, and we know that this had happened to him on the uh, Damascus Road. Uh, he is, he, the, Agabus the, the prophet then uh, knows of Paul that he is to bear his name before the Gentiles. He's commissioned by Christ to do that. And then later in Acts 26, he gives testimony of that, that he's a minister and a witness to the Gentiles to whom the Lord was sending him. So clearly he's commissioned as an apostle mainly to the Gentiles. And he identifies himself this way in at least five other letters. 
to the Corinthians, the two letters to the Corinthians, to Ephesians, and both of his pastoral letters to Timothy. You know, there are other descriptive greetings that he uses besides, besides this and other letters. Uh, in Romans and Philippians, he describes himself not as an apostle, but as a bondservant of Christ. So this isn't a foregone conclusion that he's always going to use it as his greeting. In Titus, he's both a bondservant and an apostle of Christ. In Philemon, you might expect it. It's a prison epistle. He uses, I am a what of Christ? I'm a prisoner of Christ. In Galatians, he just simply describes himself as an apostle without any warrant or commission from Christ. He just says he's an apostle. What's interesting is when you look at his earliest letters, there is no attribution of role. What do I mean by that? What are the two earliest letters by Paul, we think? First and second, Thessalonians. And he just begins by saying he's Paul. He doesn't uh, proclaim a role there. But he does say it here. He's an apostle by the will of God, and it's the same formula that he uses in First and Second Corinthians and Ephesians and Second Timothy. And in First Timothy, and in Second Timothy, he says it's by God's commandment. His point is, as he said to the Galatians very pointedly, he's really pointed to the Galatians about it. He's not commissioned by whom? He's not commissioned by humans. He's commissioned by Christ himself, by the will of God. Along with Timothy, which doesn't mean some want to say, well, that means that you know, Timothy helped him write the letter. And I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe Timothy did do the, the scribing on it. But we know who signed it, don't we? Who signed it? Paul, how do we know? He said, I'm going to make sure you know that this is for me. And I can see probably his eyesight's not very big. Sort of like, like John Hancock. He probably wrote it real big, you know, <laughs> in there. So... What's he doing here? He, he is affirming to them, I think, that he has collaborating fellow workers that work alongside him. And this is an encouragement, an encouragement to them that they ought to do the same. Then he identifies, secondly, the faithful saints. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Now, it's interesting here. When you look at the text, there are two ways that you can read this, and you probably know this. But he uses the term hagios, which means holy. He actually uses the plural the hagios. He says, to the hagios, and then faithful brethren. Now, you know that that can be used as a substantive or as an adjective. We use it as an adjective, don't we? Holy person, holy space, that sort of thing. But in Greek, it could mean what? Holy ones. And it often was used that way. And that's the way it was with a lot of Greek adjectives. So it could be the, to the holy and faithful brethren who are at colloquy. You see, the brethren are both holy and faithful. Or it could be to the holy ones, and there it's not an adjective. Clearly, that means when it's holy ones, the hagios or the hagios, the word that we would use there to substitute for it is what? Saints. Saints. Uh, to the saintly and what? Faithful brothers are to the saints and the faithful brethren. The more common translation of this is found in the King James, most of our modern translations, the NASB, the NIV, the ESV. Only the RSV, I think, and the International Standard Version translate it as an adjective, the holy brethren. I don't think it makes a lot of difference there. What does this not mean, though? <laughs> it doesn't mean that he's talking to two different groups of people, Okay. He's not talking about some who are saints and some that are faithful. I think that's pretty obvious. 
There's another thing that I think that he, and it's kind of subtle here. I don't think that he's doing this, but some would say, well, he's talking to part of the church at Colossae. He's talking to those that are, that are holy and faithful, but, you know, there's some that aren't. I think it's just a general description. To all of you that are at Colossae, I am proclaiming you, I am describing you, I'm identifying you as what? Both what? Holy saints and faithful. Holy ones, the saints. What does this not mean? Are you a saint? Am I a saint? Be careful here, okay. (laughs) What does it mean? It's not a moral description. It doesn't mean that the people are perfect. It doesn't mean that they have achieved some status of goodness. Although the expectation is that we are to be holy like our God is holy, there's clearly that. Uh, we are to be, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Sure, but it doesn't mean that we've achieved any kind of holiness, certainly not on our own, or that we have come to a point of perfection. That's not what it means. Rather, it's a corporate identity. It's talking about the people of God. God has done what? Holy means what? It's not just a moral quality, and we know this. It is to be sanctified. That has to do with morality, but it means to be what? It means to be set apart. We know that. So there are people that have been set apart for God's purpose, like Israel had been in Exodus the 19th chapters. They stood at Mount Sinai, and God has called them a kingdom of priests. And what kind of nation? A holy nation. It certainly doesn't mean that they had arrived. (laughs) Heavens, no. They grumbled in the desert ten times. You know, they rebelled against him. But they were set aside and dedicated for God's purpose. In Leviticus the 11th chapter, it says... Holy yourselves, consecrate yourselves, and be holy. What that means, yeah, it does mean to live like God wants you to live, but it really means to set yourself apart to God's purpose. Leviticus 19, you shall be holy as the Lord your God is holy. Surely that isn't an expectation that we we can ever be in this life perfect. It has to do with being set apart. And it's confirmed later in this letter that this is what he means. Because in chapter 3, verse 12, look at it. It says, so as those who have been chosen of God, the elect, you see, the covenant people, new covenant people, holy and beloved. You see, it's a description of the people of God. That means that today, as we know, you know, some cultures believe in saints are those that have been beatified and they're in the presence of God and the rest aren't quite there yet. No. It's not biblical. It means that all of God's people are saints. This is a radical change from into the new covenant. Uh, in the old covenant, that term holy was reserved for, for Levites and priests, for Nazarites, for prophets, for angels, apart from that expression found in, in uh, the holy nation. In the New Testament, all of God's people in his body are holy. And this is what's really radical. That's why we took the time to say, what kind of church is Paul talking to? What is the constituency of the church at Colossae mainly? Gentiles. He's saying to Gentiles that are uncircumcised, that haven't gone through proselyte baptism, that haven't become Jews, he's saying to them, you're holy. You're set apart for God. You're dedicated for his purpose. This is radical stuff. And there's no requirement for circumcision. As a matter of fact, he deals with that later. Don't let people make you think that you've got to be circumcised first. Don't, make people, don't let people make you think that you've got to go through legalistic requirements to become a Christian. This is radical. There's a curious omission here. Why does Paul not greet the church at Colossae? There are other places where he greets the church. First and Second Corinthians, 
First and Second Thessalonians. Galatians, he greets the churches, not just one church. I think one of the answers is, is this. Uh, in the early letters, which we've just described, Paul greets the churches. In the later letters, he uses more personal addresses. Romans, beloved and saints. Ephesians, saints and faithful. Philippians, saints and Christ. Colossians, saints and faithful brothers. He's using a more personal term to identify who the corporate body is. They're the members of the church. And he made this clear in his letters to the Corinthians. He's talking to the church in Corinth because he's addressed it to the church in both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. But then he says to the church, those who have been sanctified by Christ Jesus, saints by calling, 1 Corinthians 1, 12, 1 2. Parallel text, 2 Corinthians 1, 2. He's talking to the church of God in Corinth, and he says, with all the saints who are with you throughout Achaia. So clearly, this term saints is identifying the church, that they're dedicated to God. They're faithful brothers. This is a very unusual usage. It's unique in Paul's description in his greetings. He uses it nowhere else except in Colossians. And Paul rarely describes a person in his letters as being a faithful person. Very rarely. It's only found in a couple or three places outside of Colossians. It's rare usage when he calls them faithful. He calls Timothy faithful in 1 Corinthians. He calls the Ephesians faithful in chapter 1, verse 1. He calls Tychicus faithful in Ephesians 6. And those are the only other places that he mentions people being faithful when he's talking about individual persons. And yet in Colossians, there are three references beyond this about people who are faithful. He, even though he has not met them, based on Epaphras' report to him, knows that they have a quality of faithfulness. I think that's one thing. He speaks of Epaphras being faithful, of Tychicus being faithful, Onesimus being faithful. What is meant here? I don't think that he's so much talking about um, people that he knows on record as being faithful. I think what he's doing, Epaphras has reported to him that they have been faithful up to this point, but they're being besieged by heresies. I think another thing's going on here. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. But you know when your parents raised you and they told you how good you were and you knew you worked, how smart you were, and yet you just got that C on that exam? You know what your parents were doing? What were they doing? They were encouraging you and they were laying out a standard for you to live up to. And they were also saying, I have what in you? I have faith in you. I have faith in you. You have problems at Colossae, and we're going to be talking a lot about those over the next few months that they're dealing with. So he's encouraging them not just as faithful people, but he's encouraging them to what? Be faithful. I think he's putting the goalpost out there and saying, you need to live up to this steadfastness. There are two locations that are found in this, in this passage. One is a geographical location, and the other is a spiritual location. One is in Colossae, where is the spiritual location that's found in these verses? They are in where? Where is the spiritual location? They are at Colossae, they are in Christ. This is a Pauline term, we've said it before, we said it when we were talking about redemption. 
This term in Christ is found by only one other author in the New Testament, and it's by Peter, and he uses it only twice in 1 Peter, but it's used 12 times in Colossians. Paul uses it over and over and over, 80 times. You see, saints and faithful brothers and sisters are those that are what? Found in Christ, and they're abiding in His will. They are part of the vine. This is more than a titular description. He's just not calling them Christians. It's not about a belief system. It's, 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 it's more about a family bond. You are in Christ of the Father. One body becoming one person with the rest. No longer identified with the pagan culture that you came out of. No longer associated with a Jewish uh, temple. No, no longer associated with these synchristic cults. Where is your spiritual location? You live in Colossae, but your spiritual location is where it is in Christ. Be faithful to that. Let me close with this. Paul encourages the faithful saints and his, and his grace to you in peace from God our Father. He uses this in every greeting, so it's, it's not unusual. Every greeting has grace and peace to you. And in First and Second Timothy, he adds another. Can you guess what it is? Grace and peace and, well, what's the flip side of grace? Mercy. So there's nothing really unusual about this. But there's a curious omission. You see, every other letter when he says grace and peace to you, he says, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at it. Is it there? Is it there? It's not there. So what's Paul doing here? This grace and peace comes from the Father. Now, he's not eliminating Christ, but I think what he's doing here is he's saying, I'm focusing on the Father now. Grace and peace from the Father to you. And then what he does in verse 3 is he reminds us that we need to be thankful for the Father, the kind of grace and peace that he has dispensed upon us. Because this whole letter, well, the first part of the letter is going to be about the supremacy of whom? the supremacy of His Son, Jesus Christ. So He lays the foundation. Grace and peace comes from the Father, and one of the greatest gifts that He has given us, for which we are thankful in verse number 3, is His Son. And then He later describes in chapter 1 the supremacy of that Son. We must be thankful to the Father that He has given us the Son. And why has He given us this grace and peace? There is an exhortation that points to the ultimate purpose of God's grace and peace. What is the ultimate purpose of God's grace and peace for all of us? One of the ultimate purposes. When you look at verse one, chapter 1, verse 28, you find it. We have the grace of God through the Father and the peace of God through the Father that comes through Jesus Christ, so that what might happen in verse number 28, that we proclaim Him, that is Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every person, what? Complete. In Christ. So as we go through this study, I think we need to keep that in mind. That God's purpose, one of His purposes in this letter, is that we might do what? We might present every person in this body that is a saint, that is a faithful brother or sister, as what? Complete in Christ.